Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, good morning, church. Uh, welcome to our online gathering. My name is Andre. I'm the lead pastor at the city. As always, a real privilege to have you join us, even in this unconventional way uh, of gathering online. We are just coming back from a pause from last week where we gathered as teams to plan and chart a course ahead for our church uh, in light of uh, the recent changes, in light of these uncertain times. And so we have a definitive way forward. We have a city plan. And so uh, do, <laughs> do stay tuned for all that. Yes, this does not reflect my political allegiances, but... Yes, we do have a plan. Uh, well, you may have noticed, you know, I'm wearing this and uh, I may, you know, according to some of you, twinning with Therese, you know, and so, albeit you know, a much larger and taller twin. And so, yes, I am expanding my fashion choices. Well, I have a couple of announcements for you before we get moving on uh, with the message. You know, I have a word for you this morning uh, and, you know, it's, I, I believe it's going to really speak to you. Uh, first off, um, you know, we are right in the middle of a sermon series called Enduring Faith. We are just coming back to it. We did two weeks. We did a few messages in between, but now we are coming back to week and so, you know, no doubt we are touching on a very uh, crucial but also contentious issues uh, through this series. And so understand that many of you will have questions, will have stuff that you want to work through. And so we are making available a link after this service uh, for you to prop in your questions. And the plan is uh, three weeks from now, as we close the series, we will be taking some time to answer those questions. So look out for that survey. Uh, the other announcement that I have for you is that in light of uh, these times where we are unable to gather together, the team and I have been discussing and we'd like to announce that Season 2 of The Daily will be coming. Uh, we will be resuming The Daily starting tomorrow. And so uh, wherever you get your podcast from, you know, Spotify or Apple, uh, The Daily will be back. And so uh, this is going to be really exciting and uh, excited to uh, connect with you through that medium. Sounds good? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. All right. We are on week three of our sermon series, uh, Enduring Faith. Now, if you remember part two, uh, we... Uh, you know, talked about doubt, and it was this message on doubt and deconstruction, this word that we'll be getting into shortly. And this message, in many sense, is part two of that message, because doubt and deconstruction really, really play into each other. And so a few weeks ago, we explored how doubt, you know, is not something to be vilified or venerated, but it's something to be captured as an opportune moment, as an invitation into a deeper faith. And so for this morning, we'll be exploring or furthering this idea of doubt through, this, through exploring this concept called deconstruction. Now, if I can put it plainly, doubt is the struggle to believe, whereas deconstruction is questioning what you believe. Let me put it again. Let me, let me say it again. Doubt is the struggle to believe, whereas deconstruction is the questioning of belief. And so for today, we'll be exploring the role of questioning in the spiritual life. You know, it was J.R. Tolkien who said, not all who wonder are lost. J.R. Tolkien said that, Lord of the Rings guy. It's not some, you know, <laughs> millennial that said that, but it's J.R. Tolkien. He said, not all who wonder are lost. And I'd like to put it to you today that not all who question, not all who doubt are lost. We'll start off by reading a couple of passages of Scripture and then begin this time with a word of prayer. Reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
starting from verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Another passage of scripture from Job chapter 42. My eyes have heard of you, but now, my ears, sorry, have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin this time with a word of prayer. You know, this day is Pentecost Sunday. This is the day in the church calendar where we remember, where we celebrate the coming of God's Spirit. This is the day where the church was born. The Spirit came upon the people in the upper room who were in doubt, questioned, and uncertain, and filled them with power from on high. Suddenly, God's Spirit came upon the room and breathed life upon them. And so this is what we're celebrating this morning in many ways, and this is what we believe is happening in reality, in our homes. The Spirit of God is at work, is living, is breathing, is working amongst His people. And so let's pray this morning. God, indeed, this day we remember the coming of Your Holy Spirit. Suddenly you came into the room. In doubt, in uncertainty, in darkness, your light broke through. And this morning, we remember our world for all it's going through. We remember people in our community, those who are in need in this moment. And Lord, we speak forth and we declare Pentecostal power. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, the same spirit that descended upon the believers in the upper room, the same spirit of God that breathes life to our mortal beings is indeed at work among us. And so we remember all who are in need today. We speak life and life and life, the Spirit's power. We speak that over Laura, even right now. Baby Laura, we speak life and life and life, Pentecostal power, the suddenness of God. We declare and we proclaim a turnaround in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, we speak forth the purposes and blessings of God upon that baby. We call her to come to life in all its fullness. We thank you for this day, even as your people are gathered, this manner, God, may your spirit descend upon us as we look to you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, how many of you have heard of uh, Joshua Harris? Oh, I know it's, it sounds like a dated name, but some of you may may uh, unreally familiar Joshua Harris. But, you know, if you grew up uh, and your youth leader told you uh, you had to date uh, to marry, or you, you cannot date, you know, you have to court. Uh, and, you, you know, whoever you date, you had to eventually marry. Uh, chances are you would have been directly or indirectly impacted by Joshua Harris and his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I know some of you are just triggered a whole bunch of, like, latent trauma. I'm so sorry, but 
we shall move on. Now, in this book, uh, Harry's advocates for what many would call purity culture, and he emphasizes the idea of courtship over dating. And that's to say courting with the intention of marriage as opposed to casual dating. It held the idea that the best way to preserve one's purity was to stop dating altogether. Dating was a game, Harris wrote then, and it hurt people, and he said this, it was a practice for divorce and a distraction from preparing for real life. He also introduced some concepts like abstaining from all physical touch before marriage and the idea of giving one's heart away every time you dated someone. He opens his book with a parable of a woman on a wedding day taking the hand of her groom and watching in horror as six other women took his hand as well. The groom explains that he has no feelings or affections for this woman. They are girls from his past. And though they didn't mean anything to him, they, he had already given them a part of his heart. Now, Harris was homeschooled and grew up in a conservative evangelical home. And he was just 21 years old when I Kiss Dating Goodbye was published. The book quickly became the most popular resource for a growing movement of Christians, and it sold 1.2 million copies worldwide. It was a national bestseller. And at its best, it guided teenagers towards sexual abstinence. However, at its worst, it heaped shame and condemnation on young people who had been previously sexually active. Most Christians, including Harris, would agree sex is best safe for marriage. But the way that message had been communicated without nuance, coming across condemning and without hope has proved to be controversial. Now, I am not here today to defend nor condemn the book, but to chat a bit about where Harris is at in his faith today. Now, Harris went on to get married. He started a family and became a pastor of an American mega church. All the while, voices began to emerge of people who said that their lives had been damaged by his writings, by the books, or by how people propagated his beliefs. At first, he ignored the pushback. Like, he ignored tweets such as, your book was used against me like a weapon. Eventually, though, he was forced to consider if this book that he had written to help young people had actually caused more harm than good. He then participated in a documentary titled, I Survived, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I Survived, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which explores stories of harm and damage that the book potentially caused. After much speculation and battling with guilt, Harris finally vowed to discontinue the publication of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And following that, in 2019, the man who was the poster boy for uh, evangelical uh, views of purity, dating, and marriage, announced that he and his wife were separating after 21 years of marriage. Nine days later, after that announcement, he said this, and quote, he had undergone a massive shift in regard to his faith in Jesus. He had undergone a massive shift in regard to his faith in Jesus. He goes on to say this, the popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. I've lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. Now, stories like Harris's aren't unique, nor few. 
read and link of the hit YouTube channel, Good Mythical Morning. Recently, I came out with their own deconstruction stories. They were formerly crew missionaries. Audrey Assad and Marty Sampson, worship leaders, also had the same stories, professing that they too had left the Christian faith. Now, all these stories and confessions are eerily similar. It's as though there's a fixed template out there. Like, you want to deconstruct, like, there's a Google form they can fill, and then you get a template. When confronted with objections or inconsistencies in their faith, many would venture to conclude that they had perhaps departed from the faith altogether or the faith that they once believed in was no longer worth believing in anymore. Deconstruction. Now, what happens when everything you once believed about God begins to crumble? Perhaps you lose a loved one or you get ill or you start to question whether God is really good. Or perhaps you stumble across some skeptical material online or your beliefs challenged at university in an ethics or philosophy class. In a moment, those doubts you had about Scripture and God come to the fore, come to the surface, and you're left feeling overwhelmed. What do you do? For many, these questions that I'm posing isn't theoretical. Many of us can think of people who have walked away from their faith after a bout of questionings. We did a survey, which many of you responded, and in that survey, 85% of you said that at some point in your life, you had struggled with doubt and questions, and 25% of you said that you are still struggling today. But hear me in saying this, not everyone who doubts their faith ends up rejecting it. Not everyone who doubts their faith ends up rejecting it. In fact, many followers of Jesus, both past and present, are claiming that an in-depth review of their beliefs has the potential to strengthen one's faith and not destroy it. Now, this exercise of re-examining one's constructed or inherited faith, I'll get to that in a bit, wrestling with it, re-examining it, and then coming to a deeper or different understanding is deconstruction. And in this word deconstruction is making its way around Christian circles, particularly in the West. Chances are that even if you have not heard of this term, you have at least at some point entertained or worked through this concept and idea. Now, theological deconstruction in simple terms refers to what happens when a person asks questions that lead to the careful dismantling of their previous beliefs. Some talk about a mid-faith crisis. We've heard of mid-life crisis. It's a mid-faith crisis where deeply held doctrines are re-examined and sadly for some are traded in favor of more progressive ideas. Deconstruction in a general sense is the dismantling of anything that has been constructed. In architecture, it's a building demolished. In baking, it's that biscuit that you crumble to make the pie crust. In child's place, it's pulling apart the Lego pieces. Deconstruction was first a postmodern philosophical term, but in recent times it has caught on in the world of religion. I have a definition up on screen. Deconstruction is defined as the systematic pulling apart of the belief system you were raised in. Deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and at times rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. And so theological deconstruction as such is the process of dismantling one's inherited beliefs. It is what happens when the questions you have pushed down your whole life 
finally bubble up to the surface and you're forced to stare honestly at your beliefs and also at your doubts. The infallibility of the Bible, the omniscience of God, the finality of hell, all these things come to the surface and you're forced to stare at them and grapple with them. That is deconstruction. Now, note here in my definition, the process of dismantling one's inherited belief. I use the word dismantling and not the destruction of one's beliefs. And so the image we are to have in many ways is that of Legos, right? Picture as a child, you were, handled, you were handed a, a box of Legos, right? And the, with the box of Legos came a set of instructions on how you were to put it together. And so you took it as it is and you fit the pieces together, you put it all together and this is the thing that you have built. What deconstruction does is that it forces you or it puts you in a place where you pick apart that which you have built from your childhood and you examine each piece carefully. You examine its purpose, its intent, why this piece fits here instead of then, what this piece is used for, what this piece means. That is deconstruction with the hopes though of putting it back together into something that may be the same or different from where you started. And so a good and desired outcome of deconstruction is weeding out that which is bad and typical to the way of Jesus and also possibly a further solidification of what you already believe through the refining process of doubt. Are you with me, folks? Now, many view deconstruction not as inherently bad thing, but many view it as a midway point in a three-step process toward maturation. Some see it as inherited beliefs, going through a process of re-examination before becoming accepted beliefs. Knowing, unknowing, new knowing, confirmation, that which was constructed in you as a young person, contradiction, facing opposition, pushing through it, and then coming into some form of continuity. And the words that we are favoring today is that of construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. I know these are many terms, but I'm getting somewhere, folks. Track along with me. Now, in construction, the basic structures of beliefs are accepted and established, and this is usually happens in the context of a family of origin, church upbringing, or community where one becomes Christian. And now what is characteristic of this stage is that beliefs are accepted pre-critically. That means to say that beliefs are accepted as is. Someone tells you that this is so, you just take it wholesale, you just take it on, and you believe it. But as the problem is with this is that as we discover later in life, the uncritical reception of beliefs can also make way for the uncritical reception of bad beliefs. That is always to say that the problem with good soil is that it has the potential to grow both good vegetables and weeds all at the same time. And so I've recently, you know, gone to see a counsellor and, and it's been really good for me and it's really uh, helping me in my walk with Jesus. And now one of the first things that a counsellor would do, if you've ever been to one, is that he will sit you down and for an hour just go through your family of origin. How do you grow up? What's your relationship with parents? What are some memories that you recall from your childhood? And we probably all know why a counsellor has to do that, right? Because our past, our upbringing, our childhood, our family of origin, though it happened in the past, has a bearing on who we are in the present, has a bearing on who we are in the future. And much as that is possible and that is a reality when it comes to our family of origin, so what we say that our faith family of origin has the same bearing on our spirituality, on our faith, on how we view doctrine and God. Am I making sense? And much as there is no perfect 
family, there is no perfect family of faith. Regardless of where you were brought up and what communities you grew up in, chances are, along with the good and formative and powerful beliefs that you have taken on in your fundamental and foundational years, you perhaps have taken on some bad beliefs as well. And that's where we approach this next stage called deconstruction. It's helpful to, to view it as a double-edged sword. It can edify our faith by helping us think critically or rethink wrong beliefs. And it can also go as far to bring our faith into ruin, into nothing. Any belief uncritically received at some point that remains hostile or opposed to the biblical message of Jesus needs to be deconstructed. And there's a world difference between deconstructing wrong beliefs and deconstructing the faith, much as there's a difference between remodeling a room and tearing down an entire building. There's a difference. There's a stark difference. Because today we observe that this movement of deconstruction isn't seeking reconstruction nor truth. It is uh, it's at root seeking to tear down all that is faithful, historic, and beautiful about our faith, all that is beautiful about Christian tradition and belief in the name of progress. It is fueled by a desire to determine what is good and right for oneself. And a temptation, I'll put it to you, is as old as time itself. This impulse to determine what is good and bad, good and evil for ourselves. It's a temptation that's old as time itself. In Genesis chapter 3, read of this passage that you're familiar with. I have that passage up on the screen. It says this in God's word about the fall of men. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there's a lot of work that we can do in the text, but I'd just like to draw attention to a couple of details. Notice in the story, what does the enemy, the serpent, the antagonist go after? He goes after trust. Adam and Eve's trust of God. He's making statements to go, God can't be trusted. He is holding out on you. And the enemy, the serpent, is also challenging God's definition of good and evil. You will certainly not die. You will be like God. The baseline temptation of Eve is to redefine good and evil, what is right and wrong, based on the voice in the head, the desires in the heart, rather than to trust in God's love and wisdom that comes to her through His Word. All temptation at its call is redefining, or the impulse to redefine good and evil for ourselves, based on the voice in our head, or the voices that we give room to, the desires of our heart, rather than trusting God's words and His design, His will. And so we pick and choose what is right for us or rather what feels right to us, what makes sense for us. Someone once said the temptation for believers isn't God or it is God and. 
It is taking a bit of God here, a bit of popular opinion, a bit of self-indulgence, a bit of my own will, and mixing it all together. The default temptation of humanity is not atheism, but polytheistic idolatry. It is having God as an option among many other gods and idols. And we have an idolatry of self, don't we? We want to define what is good and evil on our own terms and live life according to what we believe is our truth. Now, Thomas Jefferson, a framer of the US Constitution, third president of the United States, professed a form of Christian faith known as deism. Jefferson was noted to uh, adore the morality of Jesus, his justice and ethics, and believed that morality was the sole domain in which Jesus could import. Now, Jefferson at the same time deeply resented all of the Bible's miracles and supernaturalism and witness to Christ's divinity, Jefferson embraced and loved the morality of Jesus, but struggled and, in his own words, hated this concept of supernatural divinity. Now, housed in the Smithsonian Museum uh, in Washington, D.C., is a lasting witness to this worldview. And I have a picture up. This is Jefferson's actual Bible. And if you will look through the Bible, one will discover that whole sections of the Bible, those particularly referring to miracles, Christ's claims of deity and resurrection were cut out with scissors. They were absolutely gone. And what remained in Jefferson's Bible were part of Jesus' teaching and ministry that fit within his own sensibilities and understanding. What Jefferson deemed as useful for him, the morality of Jesus to which he very much agreed with, minus the superstitious miracles, claims divinity, demons, and physical resurrection. Now, I have never seen in this day any of you take a scissors to your Bible and cut out portions of scripture that you struggle with or portions of scripture that you do not agree with. But even though we do not cut out the Bible physically, we do it emotionally, we do it intellectually, we do it exegetically, we do it spiritually. We've become adept at cutting out the aspects of God, revelation of who He is, His will, His standards for us that don't fit into our modern sensibilities and conviction. This is our current cultural climate. We see widespread compromise in the church in favor of what is palatable, widely accepted, and lauded over biblical truth. And the question is this for all of us, you know, in light of all that I've said. Will God's people, this generation, God's people, embrace a courageous fidelity to the way of Jesus, to the church, to how our fathers, our church fathers have historically understood the church to be, the beliefs that we deem as orthodoxy, or will we bow to the idols of our time? Idols that promise life but too often deliver death. That is the question that we are faced with this day. Now, uh, you know, there is definitely a cultural pull towards a really bad and twisted form of deconstruction. And there are many pulls uh, aside from the, the one I've mentioned. I'd like to just go through a few. Now, this generation is characterized by a few things. So one, uh, high external inputs and low scripture. You know, I read a, a report recently that media consumption has doubled uh, in the pandemic, uh, it is average that a person consumes almost seven hours of media content per day. And so the truth is we give way more time to Netflix, podcasts, and fiction far over and above scripture. 
And without question, our values and beliefs are likewise defined by our preference or what we give preference to. Or as scripture says, we behold what we become. We are, in many ways, a generation characterized by pulling from uh, inputs and sources all around and losing, honestly losing fidelity and loyalty to scripture. The next thing that we see observed uh, in churches is this thing called cheap grace, which is a term that Bonhoeffer coined. And that is essentially to say it's a kind of Christianity without a cross, the kingdom without the king, the benefits of the kingdom without the sufferings of the cross, living life largely palatable to the world, subject to our own wants and desire. It's having our faith coddled and given free reign instead of being conquered by the way of Jesus. Now, there's a framework of ethics uh, attributed to John Wesley known as the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And in the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, there's uh, four elements. It's scripture, tradition, reason, experience. I'll say that again. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. And so scripture, first of all, first and foremost, informs our ethics. Tradition, and this is not just dead tradition, but it's the way church, the church has historically understood things. And then reason, using our minds to rationalize, believing that God gives us a sanctified mind in order to weigh out truth and then experience that which we feel, that which we feel is an inner witness that comes from the Spirit. Now, this is the Wesleyan quadrilateral, scripture, tradition, reason, experience. But this day, observatively, we have flipped the order. Don't get me wrong, you know, feelings are great. You know, we've flipped the order to go experience, reason, tradition, scripture. And so we often start with how we feel and then we look to scripture in order to validate how we feel. We look to scripture as a way to confirm our already bias that comes from our feeling instead of having scripture inform how we ought to feel and how we ought to think. Feelings, emotions, experience are legitimate. Don't get me wrong, but they are a horrible barometer for truth and ethics because it's ever-shifting and also subjective. Another thing that drives us towards this bad deconstruction impulse is sadly wounded hearts, a wounded heart and broken trust with spiritual leaders and all the church. Perhaps you were hurt by a church leader and now want nothing to do with the church or have been grieved in recent times by the failings of moral of faith leaders, moral failings of leaders. Or you see a vast disparity between the church that you see and the church of the Bible. Hear me in saying this, we have a whole generation of people deconstructing their beliefs, not because those beliefs are wrong, but because they never saw those beliefs actually done and lived out in a loving community of commitment and sacrifice. If this is you, you know, we'll spend some time two weeks from now talking about church wounds and hurts, but I would like to just pause for a moment and, and just give a pastoral word. If you are wounded today, with all my heart, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry for whatever experience you've gone through. But pastorally, I'll say to you, do not let your wounds lead you. Don't let your wounds lead you. Don't let your wounds lead you. When our wounds lead us, we can very easily become cynical, bitter, offended, have a hardness of heart, and step into a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. All churches are bad. All church leaders are out to get me. All church leaders have an agenda and a motive. And because that is the worldview or the lens to which we view the world, very soon we'll start looking for cracks and flaws in people, in foundations. 
and then we will step into self-fulfilling prophecy and it further cements these beliefs until we come into a hardness of heart, being unable to be warm again to God and His people. There's a quote I'd like to take you through. It's a fairly lengthy one. A.J. Soboda says this, when emotions become the engine for deconstruction, its purpose can be lost. Emotions hijack the car. Our posture of deconstruction shapes our character. Perpetual acts of deconstruction can make us into destructive individuals. We morph from doing deconstruction to becoming deconstructors. One of the inherent problems with deconstruction is when we don't have the wisdom to know when it should stop. If we deconstruct certain biblical interpretations, when do we stop? If we deconstruct Christian theology, where do we pause before undoing the entire system? If we chart one part of orthodoxy, where do we stop? Therein lies the danger. Once we begin deconstructing, when is the right moment to put down the sledgehammer? And I put it to you that if you're wounded today, it's a horrible place to start this deconstruction process. And it's a sure it's, it's a, a certain way towards this kind of emotionalism that we read in this quote that causes you to destruct, deconstruct to the point of destruction. The last thing that kind of pushes us towards this deconstructive impulse is this fancy term. You know, I love this term. It, 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 uh, it's a term coined by C.S. Lewis, and it's this term chronological snobbery. I love it chronological snobbery. I just love saying it. I can say it 10 times. Chronological snobbery. And C.S. Lewis uh, coined this term, and basically by this term, he means that it's the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. In layman's term, the new, the different, the innovative is always more valid and truthful than the last or that which is in the past. J.I. Packer describes it this way. The newer is the truer. Only what is recent is decent. Every sheaf of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. We have this kind of chronological snobbery, a deep appreciation for the things of the past. Can I just correct a false belief here that this... We talked about new wine, we talked about the new things that God is doing, and it does not always have to look like innovative, it does not always have to look like different, and perhaps the new thing that God wants to birth in us is that in this climate, in this time where many are moving away from faithful tradition, that we will be a people that are grounded in what is historic and what is true and what is right in Christ. Maybe the new work that God wants to do to us, in us, is that we'll resist this cultural pull towards chronological snobbery and we'll be people who'll be found faithful and true. Perhaps that's the new that God wants to do. The cultural messaging today is this, that we must always question previous assumptions. Doubt is for the sophisticated. Skepticism is for the educated, open-minded, tolerant, and cultured. Faith is for the simpleton and uneducated. And if you're smart, you are a doubting skeptic. Hear me in saying this, nowhere do we see that skepticism and cynicism being traits of the spiritually mature. Rather, we see the inverse to be true. Those who are found trusting and leaning and believing, those are whom the Bible deems as spiritually mature. Now, to sum up all that I've just said, those four points, in a nutshell of where we get it wrong when we approach deconstruction, where our culture has it wrong in deconstruction is this, Instead of using scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church, 
many of us are using the world or the way of the world to critique Scripture's authority in the church. We approach Scripture for validation rather than revelation, to validate what we already believe instead of a revelation of what God says truth is to be. And where Scripture fails to deliver, we either dismiss it entirely or employ twisted hermeneutics to get to say what we want to say. So the age-old temptation rings true, doesn't it? This desire to define good and evil for ourselves. But the way of Christ and the way of all who follow him proposes a different way. And so we come to read Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians. And this was written to a church struggling with division, quarrels, and doubt. And he starts off with a plea. I beg you, hear that language, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expected to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Notice here that while the ideologies of our day are new, the temptation to mix the way of Jesus and what the New Testament calls the way of the world is as ancient as time. In the face of this temptation, this moment, not just then, but in 21st century Singapore, the invitation of Paul is this, to demolish strongholds of the mind. To demolish strongholds of the mind. He says this, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That word demolish can be translated destroying, tearing down, or interestingly, deconstructing. It's to instead take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Or another way to put it, to submit every thought under the rule, reign, and authority of Christ. To tear down strongholds, to submit every thought to the rule, reign, authority of Christ. So let's pause for a moment. You read in this text, right, what you just read, there are essentially two calls here. One is a call to Jesus, a fidelity to Jesus. Every thought that we have must be submitted to Christ. It must be captured and put into obedience to Christ and His way. So you can picture it, it's like a guard at the castle gates, resisting, pushing back, denying entry to things, to thoughts that are contradictory to the way of Jesus. And then there's a second call to demolish to tear down existing strongholds. That means to say that these thoughts have already infiltrated the castle walls. They are inside the castle. And so what we are we to do? We are to tear them down. We are to demolish. We are to deconstruct bad beliefs. And so, there is a time for guarding and resisting, but there is also a time for demolishing. There's a good spirit-led questioning re-examining and deconstruction. Doubt, questioning, deconstruction, I'd like to put it to you, has a legitimate place in the life of faith. Also, Chambers once wrote, doubt is not always a sign that man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. We think of Jesus' call to call us to have childlike faith, have childlike wonder. And many of us think this childlike faith is just a blind kind of believing. But if you have kids of your own or if you've observed children around your parents, you will notice that much of their interactions with parents is just full on asking questions. Why like this? Why can't I do that? 
Why are things like this? Why are you doing this? Why can't I go here? Why can't I go there? A childlike faith isn't a dumbed-down faith. It's a question-asking foundation of faith that leads to answer-producing joy in the journey. And a true and living faith will often require us to undertake or to entertain some kind of deconstruction. If you think about it, Jesus himself deconstructed. You read Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Every time Jesus mentions this, you have heard it said, but now I say to you, he is deconstructing bad interpretations of the Old Testament. Jesus' deconstruction of religion upended all religious assumptions and reoriented everyone back to God's loving heart. And there is Martin Luther, whose deconstruction led to what we call Protestantism. Standing at the door of the church with a hammer in his hand, he nailed 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg. He had seen for far too long the church's abuse of people. And by the Spirit, Jesus continues to deconstruct, to demolish anything in the church today that goes against, that is contrary to his kingdom. You may say that part of faithfully following Jesus is deconstructing. It is deconstructing anything that is in line with God's words, heart, and character. So the call of Paul is to aim these, this deconstructionist impulse not at the faithful orthodoxy, the historic tradition of the church, our beliefs, the creed, but it's to aim this deconstructionist impulse against the way of the world, to use scripture to critique how the world has infiltrated the church rather than using the way of the world, what is palatable in culture, what is popular opinion to critique Scripture's authority in the church? A consumeristic approach to the church, the prosperity gospel, the abuses of power, celebrity Christianity, all of these things need to be unapologetically deconstructed in the church because simply put, they are antithetical to the way of Jesus. There is a place for deconstruction in the life of faith to bring all things into obedience to Christ. And so the goal of deconstruction isn't liberation from Christ. It is a greater obedience to Christ, a greater fidelity to Christ. And so I'd like to recap, take some time to recap. You know, uh, let me put up my, my, my thingamajig. What do we call this? Table. And so, you know, I, I do have people helping me with all this content. So Janice and Tim came out with this beautiful table, which I think is phenomenal. This can be put into papers and stuff like that. But they draw a distinction between good and bad deconstruction, something which I've endeavored to cover uh, in our time uh, together. And so good deconstruction, you know, it receptively approaches the process of humility of heart. The bad adopts an arrogant weaponized stance. The good begins with a question. The bad starts with a conclusion. It's not seeking after truth, but finding ways to validate what one feels to be true. The good questions our beliefs, and the bad outrightly questions our trust in God. It questions God's character, His nature. The good critically searches for the truth of God and Scripture through the onslaught of the cultural narratives, and the bad attempts to fit God into our cultural context. The good maintains a posture of openness and wonder, the bad elevates cynicism, skepticism as synonymous with intellect and maturity. Because I doubt, because I have questions, I'm smarter than everyone else. Faith is for the simpleton. 
The good is God-focused. It seeks an encounter with God, the unboxable God. The bad is self-seeking to justify and venerate individual opinion. And the good is determined to face and work through questions in order to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And the bad simply looks for validation and justification to give up on Jesus and his church. Doesn't that so describe what we're seeing in our world today? A kind of bad deconstruction. Now, I'm taking this to a landing shortly, but you know, planes take a while to land. So, track along with me. Now, the fallacy in many of our approaches you know, when we come into doubt and questions, or the fallacy in our approach uh, to how we find our way back to faith, how we surmount doubts and questions, is that we approach it purely intellectually. We try to read more, talk more, ingest arguments and counter-arguments, what is good, right? It's a unbalanced and idle attempt to regain faith because faith, as we read in the Library of Scripture, comes from God, not your mad Googling skills. Faith comes from God, not your Googling skills or how many smart people you know. Faith comes from God. And so the bigger question to answer here is that in deconstruction, what is your goal? Is it to find answers to satisfy your intellectual dissonance or to come back to faith in God? While the two can be tied and linked in many ways, I've discovered that faith in God does not necessarily mean answers to my questions. It does not. And the truth is, if we can only engage with what we understand, we cannot engage with God. If we can only engage with what we comprehend, we cannot engage with God. Because, you know, this is the basic premise of theology. God is an unknowable mystery. He is ultimately a divine ministry. He is knowable personally in many ways, but he cannot be boxed. No matter how much we know of and love him, there is always more to be known and understood. He is vast and unsearchable. And so when we encounter questions or objections within ourselves about God and his ways, and we take a step back to say, I cannot engage with that which I don't understand anymore. I need to figure things out. We have essentially reversed the order of faith-seeking understanding to understanding-seeking faith. I'll put it to you today that faith above all else is relational trust, is trusting in God. It does not mean that we'll have answers to all our questions, but faith at its root is in spite of mystery, in spite of unanswered questions, a fidelity, a faith, a trust in God. And so the goal of deconstruction is not arriving at a perfect theology. The goal of deconstruction is finding our way back to Christ, who himself is perfect theology. Now I have a bunch of stuff to cover, but I'll just like to close off with one final story before I take us to a landing. You know, I love the story of Karl Barth. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Karl Barth. He's this German theologian, prolific theologian of the 20th century, famous for writing this book called Church Dogmatics. And book is a horrible way to describe church dogmatics because it totals about 12 million words. Barth wrote this book called Church Dogmatics and has 12 million words in it. Legend has it that Karl Barth himself did not read the entire book. He wrote it, closed it, and it was like, I'm done. 12 million words, folks. And despite the vastness of his writing, Bath himself believed that 
in light of his writings, he believed that all of heaven's angels were laughing at him. And he says this, and he says this uh, as he reflects, in heaven, we shall know all that is necessary and we shall not have to write on paper or read more. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even the church dogmatics over the growth of which the angels have long been amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. Kaubaf concludes, where many of us should conclude, that nobody, not even the world's greatest theologians, can provide a finished theological product. Heaven as such will be the great deconstruction where many of our half-truths, our half-baked notions will be torn down and deconstructed and we will come face to face with He who is truth Himself. That is deconstruction. That is what we would come to when we step into eternity. close off with a few final points. In deconstruction, this becomes possible. You know, if it's done well, we grow to love the Lord with all our minds. We come to a greater resolution and boldness in what we believe. We journey and return to a renewed faith. And in deconstruction, we grow to shed away false images of God and see Him for who He truly is. And this is Peter's deconstruction story. You know, many of you are familiar with Peter and how he denied Christ and God, Jesus eventually, eventually restores him. But Peter came from this tradition and belief that the Messiah, that Christ, was this warring avenger king that would come and liberate his people from the Roman rule. You know, if you've ever wondered why the same crowd that yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna, a few days later, cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And that's because the people were steeped in this belief that Christ was the Redeemer King. And so when they waved palm branches, it actually dates back to a, rebel, a, a, a revolution and a revolt that was symbolized by this palm branches. And so when they waved the palm branches, they were essentially saying, Christ the Avenger King has come to liberate us through war and violence. And that was Peter's worldview. And so when, when Christ said, I was going to be crucified, Peter rebuked him and said, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're supposed to avenge us. And then Peter, disillusioned, denies Christ and doubts him. But then Jesus in his mercy, after Peter has shed away his false image of what God or who God is to really be, Jesus reconstructs Peter's faith and restores him. And that is what is possible through this process of deconstruction. It's Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up, crying, woe is me. It is Moses turning aside to see the burning bush. It is Job going through the pains and throes of doubt. And at the end of the book, declaring, my eyes, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And the haunting observation of Job's story is that God did not provide answers to Job's very valid line of questioning. Instead, he gives him his presence. He gives him his presence. And Job would move from that experience into an enduring faith that was forged in the fires of doubt and disappointment. And perhaps we too may need to land here that in life we may only know in part, but there is grace and mystery 
purpose and suffering and an unexpected maturity that emerges, that in deconstruction we shed away our false images of God and come to see God for who he truly and rightly is. And so, in closing, is there a way to walk through this deconstruction with Jesus into a deeper faith? Is it possible to come out on the other side with more love? Is, it, is there a way to navigate deconstruction and have a deeper love for the church afterward? Can it forge in us the character of God? Can we enter this, this deconstruction experience without it ultimately destroying our faith, causing us to eventually leave the church and resent Christians forever? The answer is yes. Not every storm becomes a shipwreck. And this is what Jesus seeks. A generation of followers who resist the pull of culture, who resist this impulse to define what is good and evil on their own terms and instead lean into his spirit, dismantling and demolishing bad beliefs and truths contradictory to his ways, learning to live in this kind of holy mystery, a people whose love and faith remain after doubt. This is what Jesus is seeking after this day. And so I'll have the band back on stage, but wherever you're at, I encourage you to lean in even as we seek to close this time together. You know, I love that on Pentecost Sunday that it was the Apostle Peter who preached to the crowds. The same Peter who doubted, who denied Jesus, who betrayed him in many ways, is the same person who preached that first Pentecost Sunday some weeks later. And I love that the Holy Spirit is not a reward for good behavior, nor unwavering faith, nor one who doesn't question or ever doubts. But the Holy Spirit is a gift for all who turn to Jesus in spite of their failings, in spite of their doubts. And then the same Holy Spirit is present, is for you, is available to you, even as you work through questions and doubts today. You know, I've gone through a whole bunch of content and there's a bunch of stuff that I didn't get to and ideally we'll be able to do a midweek thing to cover the rest of it and as well as, as go through some questions, um, exploring something to do so. But, you know, even as I'm sharing this day, you know, I just want to acknowledge that it is really painful and, and at times lonely to go through doubt and deconstruction on your own. And, you know, I remember, you know, there was a time where I doubted miracles. You know, I had just received a bad diagnosis right in the middle of teaching a series of miracles. And I began to question, are miracles even possible? And I felt like an absolute hypocrite praying for the sick. And it felt so lonely and so painful. So until community came in, until people came in around me, that brought me back to faith, that entertained my questions of doubt, that gave me a place to process. And so if you're deconstructing today, I would like to just make an appeal to you. Don't do so alone. Historically, the best theology that the church has produced is done when communities, whole communities come together. And our worst moment, our worst theology comes when a person comes to a conclusion in isolation and seeks to convince others of his view. Don't deconstruct alone. Come to God, come to people. And so this is how we end this message this morning, I do apologize for the ground that I didn't manage to cover. But I'd like to close off with taking us through a liturgy. Now, a liturgy in simple terms is just a prayer, a, a written prayer. And this is something that 
you know, uh, it's faithful, it's, it's part of tradition, and I think it's really powerful that prayer can be both spontaneous, but it can also be written and recited, and there's weight, there's value in that. And so I want to take us through a liturgy that was specifically written for those who doubt, for those who are in deconstruction. And so wherever you're at, as the words come up on screen, I'd love for you to read along with me. Let's pray this liturgy of doubt together. When we question everything we thought we once believed, help us, gentle teacher, to be brave seekers of truth. When doubts multiply in our mind, help us not to be afraid but curious. When questions arise about your existence, your goodness, your salvation, help us press in and believe that you can be found. Teacher, we are longing for someone to tell us what to believe. We arrogantly measure you with our own intellect, looking for answers in books, academia, pop culture, critics. But faith is impossible when we seek it within the realm of our understanding. We become fools when we claim to be wise. So help us reach beyond what we know. Help us step into wonder, into learning, into trusting you for flourishing. The adventure of faith is there. We are like sheep without a shepherd, O God. We have listened to the wisdoms of the world. We have allowed ourselves to become discipled by culture. Would you convict us of any unrighteousness suppressing the truth? Would you gently lead us to the freedom of confession? Would you give us humility to accept that some parts of reality are beyond our understanding? Would you help us hold space for not knowing, for being wrong, for trusting you with what we don't understand? Give us a spirit of humility all the days of our lives so we keep coming back to you. God, your truth vaults across the sky from sunrise to sunset. Please warm our hearts to faith. We wait for you. Though you may be hiding your face, we wait through the discomfort of doubt threatens to unravel us. We believe that truth exists though it seems impossible. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Help us seek truth with urgency and wonder, with childlikeness instead of childishness until a foundation of faith, sturdy and timeless is revealed. Keep us alive in our famine of faith until we become what we believe. In weakness, Yes, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.